ahead and introduce them both this morning, though uh, Dr. Matsko will be speaking today and Dr. Osborne next Sunday. Just very grateful to have these men here. They love the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, and they love God's Word. And if we couldn't say those two things, we wouldn't have them, of course, speaking here. Um, but they were both men called to spend their lives with a special focus on the sciences. So earned PhDs for both of them in chemistry and biology, and then long careers of teaching for both of them, and also uh, some educational leadership for, for Dr. Matsko. And now they're at that um, sort of retired, but definitely not retired stage of life, uh, because Christians uh, don't think about retirement the way the world thinks about retirement. Uh, we think about how to take what God has given us and what God has called us to and use it with all of our hearts as long as it let us. And uh, so that's where both of these men are at. Um, they both continue teaching as they can. They both are trying to work on writing books. Um, and then the Matskos have been traveling around the country and even around the world for the last several years. They have spoken uh, more than a thousand times, I think, in the last four years or something, uh, in many, many places, about the relationship between the Bible and uh, science. One of the things I love about um, Dr. Matsko, who is also my father-in-law, if, if you didn't know that, um, one of the things I love about Dad is that um, he had spent the, uh, the four decades training Christian college students, and he loved that, and God used him greatly in that. But when he um, retired from that and got ready to go start traveling and speaking, what he what he said to me was he wanted to be, and I don't remember the exact words, but really out there on the front lines. He had loved equipping people to go out, but he wanted to go be out there himself where people were asking the hardest questions, where he could interact with people around the country and around the world, um, guests who would come to things like this, scientists who would come to things like this, and just try to bring the truth right into those situations. So don't you love that in your retirement years to go try to be on the front lines more than ever um, is, is a great example to, to all of us. So these are brilliant men with significant expertise, and yet they love people, and they love the local church, and most of all, they love the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's pray together, and then Dr. Matsko will come for the first of our two sessions this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we uh, pray now that you might grant through these sessions that while we talk about science and facts and learn various things. We'll also be hearing from the word of the real God who has spoken. And so our prayer is that the reality of God would sink in even more deeply to our hearts today. And the reality that we are not God, and you are. And that that might lead us to both humble ourselves and to consider what you are worthy of from all of creation. So please help us now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Dr. Matsko. What a joy it is to be with you today. We know so many of our friends from years and years ago and uh, so many new friends now that we've just met today and we'll meet later on. And uh, it's wonderful to see God build his church here in Marietta. So some people have asked what we're doing. Uh, we have started a new organization to help us with our travel called Matsko Science Ambassadors, 
And if you see us, we'll give you a, a little business card, working on a prayer card, but that's not ready yet. And so put it on your refrigerator and pray for us. Um, those of you on live stream, you can just go to georgematsko.com and see about our ministry. And uh, maybe we can come to where you are, wherever you are in the world. We're on our way from Arizona. We just were at a, at a STEM camp at Grandview Camp in Arizona. And now we're on our way to Australia, so passing through uh, Southern California. And uh, we enjoy your cold, wet weather here. That's, so appreciate that. Making me feel at home. Okay, that's great. Well, today we're going to talk about the biblical doctrine of creation. Biblical doctrine of creation. I guess I have to push this button to make it work. No? See if we can... There we go. And um, so it's a, it's a simple, a simple uh, message. The what, the who, the how, the why, the when of creation. So there was a, a book... Let's see, did I not uh, do this right? Well, one thing that's true in every church I've been in is that the uh, slides don't work. (laughs) So I think there is a a gremlin in there. So if you can uh, advance the slides for me. There we go. In uh, 2010, the famous physicist Stephen Hawking published the book, The Great Design, where he argues that because there's a law such as gravity, the universe was able to create itself out of nothing. He said that gravity is the reason there is something rather than nothing. Why the universe exists, why we exist. But Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says something entirely different. And God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. I don't know if you have your your guide there, if you're taking notes. This is the biblical doctrine of creation, so I hope you have that. That's a help to you? Okay, it's going to work. I promised. All right. (laughs) It's me. Well, it happens everywhere I go, so it must be. (laughs) Yeah, I I can tell you to advance the slides for me then. I have a clicker at home. I should have brought that one. Okay. Uh, so next slide. So the what, the who, the how, the when, the why of creation. So let's start with the what. Next slide. Genesis one twenty six tells us the pinnacle of creation was man made in the image of God. But just as astronauts must take part of the earth into space with them in order to survive... We understand the earth had to be created first for the first man, Adam, even to exist. The human body is constructed to exist in a gravitational environment. Everything from blood flow to our sense of balance is influenced by the gravitational pull of the earth. 
Without gravity, the blood pools in the lower part of the body and the brain is deprived of blood. And that's why astronauts wear gravity suits. We actually had met the man who invented the gravity suit uh, not too many years ago and uh, talked to him about that. Next slide. And the Earth, which sustains mankind, must orbit an energy source we call the sun at just the right distance and rotate at the right speed at the right angle. And the moon stabilizes the tilt of the Earth, and the other planets in the solar system stabilize the orbit. You get the idea. The what is the whole universe, and the fact that we have a universe tells us that we must have had a creator. Next slide. One of the oldest laws of science is the law of cause and effect. The universe had a beginning, therefore requires a cause. The energy in the universe had a beginning, and therefore requires a cause. The Bible also speaks of this law of cause and effect. Notice Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether there be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he's before all things, and by him all things consist. So by this short clause, and he's before all things, the Apostle Paul is telling us something specific about the law of cause and effect, that every effect has a preceding cause. Stephen Hawking says that gravity is the cause of spontaneous creation, but he doesn't tell us where the law of gravity came from. How did the law of gravity evolve? I wonder about that. Maybe things only fell down halfway before they fell all the way down to the ground. I don't know what he was thinking. So the what is the creation of man sustained by the earth, the solar system, and beyond, and... We get to the who. Next slide. The natural question is to ask, who made God? God is eternal. He didn't have a beginning. He didn't require a cause. There's nothing irrational about an eternal being. There is something irrational about something popping up out of nothing. Psalm 90 and verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. I have a colleague in the Bible department when I taught at Bob Jones University named Dr. Dan Olinger, and he used to go to China on a regular basis, and he was able to talk about Christianity to these students. Well, during one of his lectures on creation, one of the students challenged him and said, where did God come from? This is the first question communist students are taught to ask. And here's what he said. He said, God has always existed. And the room filled with laughter. They thought that was funny. He said, you laugh. Fair enough. Let me ask you a question. Where do you think the universe comes from? I know what you think because I've read your books. You believe in the Big Bang. Billions of years ago, all the matter in the universe was condensed into a single point, and for reasons we do not understand, it began to expand very rapidly, and they all nodded their heads in agreement. So here's my question. Where did that little ball of matter come from? You know, you don't know, and you can't know. Even Stephen Hawking says at that point, all the laws of physics are suspended. So it's impossible then to know. 
I believe with evidence that God has always existed. You believe without evidence that matter has always existed. I worship God. You worship dirt. (laughs) Which of us should be laughing? He reports there was no follow-up question. That's a, it's a funny story, but it's a serious thing that he was getting at. Next slide. Something must be eternal. Either mass energy is eternal or God is eternal. And science has taught us a lot about mass energy. And one of those things we learn, know is that it wears out. So if mass energy is eternal, it would have already worn out. So the who has to be God. Genesis 1.26, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So who's the us? It's the whole of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the what is mankind and the whole universe, even beyond the 13.5 billion light years we can see with the James Webb Space Telescope, and the who is the eternal trinity. And that brings us to the how. Next slide. When it comes to understanding the how of creation, we turn to Genesis chapter 1, which tells us plainly how God brought the universe into existence. Now, it's important to note that some evangelical Christians, despite considering themselves to be Bible-believing, reject the clear teaching of Genesis 1 and 2 regarding the method of God's creation. The book of Genesis is not only foundational for understanding our origins, but also for shaping our Christian faith. Disbelief in how God said he created raises doubts about the doctrines rooted in Genesis. Let's explore a few examples of these. Next slide. The doctrine of sin finds its foundation in Genesis, uh, where the first man and woman rebelled against God and ate from the forbidden tree. Next slide. God establishes a plan for gender, declaring that he, he created humans as male and female right from the very beginning. This biblical truth sets the foundation for a correct approach to gender and sexuality. It's not determined and should not be determined by politicians and social engineers. Next slide. The doctrine of marriage is defined as a union between one man and one woman and is firmly established in Genesis. A God, not a panel of judges, invented and defines marriage. Next slide. The gospel itself has its roots in Genesis. We need a savior because of Adam. As he was our father and head of the human race, he sinned, introduced literal death into creation. We see that in Genesis chapter 3. Jesus had to come and physically die to take our place. Now, you would think that with that foundation, that all Bible-believing Christians would accept Genesis as literal historical narrative and truth. Uh, But that's not the case. Let me introduce to you and examine some uh, unbiblical views held by evangelical Christians. Next slide. The first is progressive creationism. Progressive creationism is a theological viewpoint that seeks to reconcile the teachings of the Bible with scientific understanding, particularly in regard to origin and development of life. 
Progressive creationists suggest that God created the universe and all life forms in distinct stages or events over an extended period. They interpret the days, as mentioned in the biblical creation account in Genesis 1, as representing long periods or epochs rather than literal 24-hour days. This perspective allows for the possibility of gradual development and evolution within these periods. Next slide. However, it's important to note that the Bible doesn't countenance this idea. We see that in Exodus 20.11. It tells us clearly, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. According to this verse, God created everything in six solar days. Even though the sun wasn't created till day four, we'll talk more about that later today, the creation narrative in Genesis clearly indicating not the relationship between the earth and the sun. It's talking about the actual establishment and the time period of rather than specific details about that relationship. The establishment of the Sabbath as a day of rest would lose its significance if not based on the activities of God's creation week. Next slide. Furthermore, the Hebrew word for day is the word yom, and whenever it's preceded by a number or a phrase, evening and morning, it consistently refers to a literal day. Uh, you know, there is a Hebrew word for uh, a longer indeterminate period of time. It's the Hebrew word olam, O-L-A-M. So if it took billions of years for God to create all things, why did he explicitly say it took six days? You know, I had a conversation when we were in Australia one time. I met a German young lady after I spoke. Uh, she said, I, I just don't believe the Bible teaches that the earth was created in six solar days. I said, well, you have a German Bible there. Uh, go ahead and look at it. And what does it say in, your, in the German Bible? She said, the ver German word is day. Uh, does it mean anything besides a day? No, she said it means day. So we can agree that the Bible actually teaches uh, a literal day. Uh, you may not believe it, but that's a different matter altogether. Uh, even the uh, theologian John Walton uh, agrees, even though we have vastly different views of God's creation week. Uh, he agrees that what the Bible is trying to indicate, what the writer intended, was that word actually meant a 24-hour day. Well, next slide. If the creation... Week extended over millions or billions of years, there arises a problem with placing death before Adam's fall. The Bible clearly teaches that death entered the world as a result of Adam and Eve's of disobedience in the Garden of Eden. First Corinthians 15, 21, 22, For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Romans 5.12, therefore by, his one my, by one man's sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sin. So you see that little cartoon there. Uh, you see Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, beautiful Garden of Eden, and everything is very good. But underneath of them is layers and layers of death, okay, for millions of years, if you believe in an old earth. You know, when Pastor Tim visits the hospital uh, and he talks to people, patients there, 
Uh, who is the author of death? Where did death come from? Uh, well, if we put death before Adam's fall, then God is the author of it. It's his fault, okay? But the Bible makes it clear that it was Adam's fault. It was our father who sinned, and uh, death came upon all men at all creation. Next slide. And then we have the framework hypothesis. Uh, I understand that the framework hypothesis is the most popular view of creation in seminaries today. It proposes that the creation account in Genesis 1 is not meant to be a literal chronological description of the universe's creation and life development. Instead, it is viewed as a poetic or literary framework that provides structured and thematic depiction of God's creation work, creative work. However, Genesis isn't poetry. There are poetical accounts of creation in the Bible, such as Psalm 104, some chapters in Job, and they differ significantly from the straightforward narrative in the first chapters, chapter of Genesis. Hebrew poetry is recognizable by certain characteristics like parallelism and figurative language, and those are absent in Genesis. Moses, the author of Genesis, wrote a historical account of creation, and the New Testament quotes and references accordingly. Jesus himself referenced each of the first seven chapters of Genesis. Next slide. Some proponents of progressive creation and the framework views argue that there are two conflicting creation accounts in Genesis 1 and 2. How many of you ever heard that, the idea that there's two creation accounts? A lot of hands here today. However, the trouble is, is a misunderstanding. They misunderstand how these chapters are structured. So Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's a general inclusive account of creation. Then Genesis 1, chapter 2 through verse 31 presents a more detailed account of how God created all things. Next slide. And then Genesis 2, 1 through 3 summarizes God's completed work and the establishment of the Sabbath. And then we get to Genesis 2, 4. Next slide. That serves as a signpost indicating a shift and focus to the story of mankind. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So what we're looking at is something that points forward toward the, toward the story of man. It's like there's two books in the Bible, in a way. You could say one book of the Bible is Genesis 1-1 to Genesis 2-3, and the other book in the Bible is Genesis 2-4 to the end of Revelation, okay? That, because of that is the story of man. And so we're looking at a different focus here. Not two creation accounts, just a change in focus. Next slide. The um, theistic evolution view, or evolutionary creationism as they call it, so this is a theological viewpoint that aims to reconcile biological evolution with a belief in God who's ultimately the creator and sustainer of the universe. Theistic evolutionists generally interpret Genesis as account of creation in a way that accommodates scientific theories, including the theory of evolution. However, embracing theistic evolution can lead to disastrous consequences. 
particularly when it denies how God claims to have created human beings. By doing so, it aligns with the modern scientific paradigm, but opens the door to disbelieving any part of the scripture that contradicts contemporary scientific explanations. For example, the virgin birth of Christ. Is the virgin birth of Christ, is that scientific? Is that something that we can do in a laboratory? Certainly is not. How about his resurrection from the dead? Neither of these can be verified through scientific means. So let's explore where the logic of an old earth um, leads us. It could be progressive or framework or evolutionary, uh, but all these are true. So first of all, it undermines the understanding of God as a God of grace and mercy. An old earth scenario suggests that God created a world filled with suffering and death in the animal kingdom for billions of years. And yet the Bible tells us God cares about the sparrows, right? He cares about the little things. But here is billions of years of suffering and death. It challenges the authority of the Bible as a guide. If the Bible can can be considered incorrect in matters of science and history, how can it be trusted when it speaks of salvation and heaven and eternal life? Next slide. It raises doubts about Jesus Christ being the creator. Jesus affirms that God made humans male and female from the beginning in Mark 10.6. An old earth creationist perspective suggests that Adam and Eve were created billions of years after the beginning of creation, potentially undermining Jesus' knowledge and authority. Was he just accommodating himself to the beliefs of his day? No, he was speaking truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He doesn't speak falsehood. Number four, next slide. It undermines the significance of Christ's sacrificial death. If human death is not an essential part of the penalty for sin, an old earth creation perspective questions the necessity of Christ's agonizing death on the cross. In summary, Understanding the how of creation leads us to recognize that God created the universe in six literal days through the power of his spoken word. There's no pre-existing matter, no energy, no space or time, only the eternal trinity. So the what is the universe, the who is the eternal trinity, and the how is by the word of God in six solar days. Next slide. That brings us to the when. I know you all spend your time on the genealogies and your devotions, okay? Now, a lot of times we just skip over them. So why are they there? What's the purpose of the genealogies? Well, because of the genealogies, I can confidently say that the earth was created between six or 7,000 years ago, even allowing for gaps. For 18 centuries, this is almost the universal belief of the church, So young earth creationism, what I'm talking about today, is actually historic Christian orthodoxy. It would be inconsistent with the truth-loving nature of God to let faithful Christians believe that Genesis teaches a literal six-day creation about six or 7,000 years ago, and then in the 19th century use godless men to correct the church's understanding of Genesis. But it's not just the Bible that tells us when. There are many other evidences. Let's just look at a few here. Next slide. We can think about the recent date of civilization. 
at the beginning of civilization only dates back to about 5,000 years ago, uh, the beginning of written history. Archaeology has shown that advanced modern cultures sprang up suddenly and all at the same time. These cultures devised elaborate calendars, seagoing vessels, impressive buildings, exactly what we'd expect after the flood. You know, we'd have a hard time making a pyramid today, okay? Even with modern technology and machines and so forth, we'd have a difficult time trying to construct a pyramid. These were not dumb people. Next slide. Population statistics. Using conservative growth figures of a half percent per year, the Earth's population could have been eight people about 5,000 years ago. Okay? If the Earth was even hundreds of thousands of years old, we would be, as my old physics teacher George Molfinger used to say, knee-deep in bones. The remarkable fact that all these so-called physical evidence for human evolution, you know their names, Artie and Lucy and Turcanaboy, Australopithecus, this or that, all that, all those bones could be placed into a single coffin and have enough room, Okay. So not many bones there. Where did all the bones go? Next slide. The erosion of the continents. The average yearly amount of sediments carried into the sea is 27.5 billion tons per year. The volume of the continents above sea level is 383 million billion tons. Therefore, all the continents would be reduced to sea level in 14 million years. However, according to evolutionists, the Colorado Plateau, for example, bears no signs of erosion for 70 million years. That is, 70 million-year-old rocks still lying around on the surface. How can this be with the erosion? Next slide. Decay of the Earth's magnetic fields. That's 1829. Precise measurements of the intensity of the Earth's magnetic field. That's the force that turns the compass needle north, okay? Uh, we can measure that. We've been measuring it since 1829. And what we found is that it's been decaying. Uh, and we know that half-life is around 1,400 years. And we know how big the Earth is. We know how big of a magnetic field it could possibly hold. That puts an upper limit on the age of the Earth of 20,000 years. And I'm not saying the Earth is 20,000 years. I'm saying that's as old as it possibly could be, maximum uh, because of the decay of the magnetic field of the Earth. You say, well, what do, what do uh, secular scientists say about this? Well, they say that, you know, we're going down now, but at some point it's going to go back up again. But what does that? What makes it go back up? They don't know. Next slide. Comets. Comets are icy, icy asteroids that orbit about the sun. Comet orbits degrade due to interactions with the planet and the sun. I've watched the SOHO satellite online. You can actually see some comets come in and go. they're supposed to go around the sun, but some go right into the sun. They're lost and gone forever. So comets lose about 1% of their mass every time they make that trip. And we've seen them disintegrate. If we believe in the evolutionary age of the, of the solar system, our complete supply of comets should have been exhausted long ago. Next slide. Jupiter. Uh, we've been taught that the solar system bodies reflect, uh, shine by reflected light from the sun. They absorb their heat from the sun. But Jupiter's 
actually gives off twice as much energy as it takes in from the sun. How does it do that? I mean, it's not hard if it's only six or 7,000 years old. Uh, then it's just cooling down from the original creation. But over billions of years, what's the mechanism for that? There is no answer that they give to us. No one can tell us. And then one more, Pluto. Next slide. Pluto turned out to be a traitor to the evolutionary cause. Okay. Uh, they were sure when they sent the New Horizons spacecraft to Pluto, they would turn out to be the oldest uh, surface in the solar system. It turned out to be the second youngest after Io. All the evidence contradicts an old age for Pluto. You know, there are mountains of ice, water ice on Pluto. They're as high as the as the Mount Everest. Where did they come from? There's nitrogen glaciers on Pluto. Nitrogen's volatile. It should have sublimed into space long ago. You can see with your own eyes that there's not many craters on Pluto. It was expected to have more craters uh, than any other body in the solar system because it was older, supposedly. And its atmosphere. Did you know Pluto has an atmosphere? mostly of nitrogen with some methane and carbon monoxide. The presence of an atmosphere suggests ongoing processes to maintain it. An atmospheric gases tend to escape into space over long periods of time. Pluto looks young. So when the oldest civilizations are young, the human race is young, the Earth looks young, the solar system is young and dynamic. Next slide. So the what is the universe... The who is the eternal trinity. The how is by the word of God in six solar days. And the when is six or 7,000 years ago. Now, I know I went through all that really fast. That's why you're going to ask me questions about it this evening, all right? So So write that down on your paper if you have a question. And that brings us to the most important question. That is, why? Why did God create man? Next slide. And I found two things. I'm sure Pastor Tim could find others, but I found two. And one is for his pleasure. And this verse means a lot to me as I was growing up. Revelation 4 and verse 11 says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things. And for thy pleasure they are and were created. Now, I understand the ESV, other modern translations, they talk about, you know, by your will they existed. But you have to admit, things that are according to God's will bring him pleasure. But I I did this in the King James for a specific reason, because this is what I learned when I was growing up. And those words actually gripped my heart, okay, as a young boy. For thy pleasure they are and were created. In other words, the idea that my purpose on earth was to bring God pleasure was something I hadn't considered before. Have you? I know there are some Christians, some of our friends, who think that we exist so God can bring us pleasure, but that's not right, okay? So we can bring him pleasure. So how much pleasure have you brought to God today? You say, what can I do to bring God pleasure? Well, you can do a lot of things, and deeds of kindness and mercy and obedience. You know, those of you who are students, I used to tell my students Uh, your main occupation, the way you bring God pleasure, is by doing your homework, by doing well in your studies. If uh, the Lord came back, or if you died suddenly and you were to face God, 
what would you have to present to them? Well, your report card, okay? Okay, that's what you do, okay? And so that's a part of this as well, as far as bringing God pleasure. And then, next slide, for his glory. For I have created him for my glory, I have formed him, yea, I have made him. What is glory? Glory is giving something its proper weight or worth. A weighty person is honorable, impressive, worthy of respect. I'm getting weightier every day but not in that same way. It was reported in the press that in his search for antiques at a garage sale, a Nick, Rick Norsegian bought two small boxes in the year 2000 that cost him $45 apiece and are now estimated to be worth at least $200 million. Why? Because they contained 65 glass negatives owned and created by Ansel Adams, the father of American photography. Now, what if Nursegian had turned around and resold them, bought them at $45 and resold them for $100? Uh, Would he be giving them their proper weight or worth? And the answer is no. God wants his reputation for greatness to fill the earth, not only because he's creator, but because of his unsurpassed activity as deliverer and savior. So the what is the universe, the who is the eternal trinity, the how is by the word of God in six solar days. The when is six or 7,000 years ago. And the why is because it pleased God and because he desires glory for himself. So let's pray and uh, then Tim will come up and tell you what's going to happen next. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can think about your creation, uh, that it's so clear Uh, so easy to understand. Lord, we don't know how you did a lot of these things, but we know you told us clearly when and how and where and who. All these things are clear in your word. And I pray, Father, that the message we had today will be an encouragement and blessing to those who hear, uh, both here in this room and those who are listening online. And I pray, Father, that we won't doubt your word. We'll realize that uh, we can trust it not only in, in terms of our own salvation, and theological things, but we can trust it in terms of this created world and in science. And Lord, help us to see that there's unity there. We know that it's not science versus Scripture that brings glory to God, but science in Scripture that glorifies you as the Creator God. Thank you, Lord, for that. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. see